This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. The killing of George Floyd is changing America. It's changed how we view each other and ourselves. It's changed how we view the police. It's changing laws. It's changing our future. I'm Joel Wolfork with Look West. There's no way we could consider all of the changes going on in just one episode. The subject probably deserves to be the focus of its own ongoing podcast, but we're going to try to start the conversation. Over the next three episodes of Look West, we will focus on the future of being black in California. We'll talk with community leaders, a diversity expert, a former cop who now works as a mental health therapist, and members of the California Legislative Black Caucus about their work to make the future a better place for all of us. Let's start with my conversation with Assemblymember Mike Gibson. He's in the news this week for writing legislation to outlaw the type of chokehold that killed George Floyd. Good afternoon, Assemblymember Gibson. Thank you for joining us on our Look West podcast. Um, so we're, during this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, where it's a little different, we're doing it over the Zoom, as most of our meetings have been. Um, you're tuning in from the Capitol today? I am, in my office. Excellent. We're here to talk about Assembly Bill 1196, of course, and carotid restraints. But before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit of background about you. Uh, we know that you've been an Assembly member since 2014. But what what led you to that? So I was um, I served almost 10 years on the Carson City Council. I was elected there uh, 2005 as city council member, mayor pro tem. And then 2014 uh, ran for the California State Assembly. And I was very successful representing the 64th Assembly District. But prior to that, there's a there's a a story that is not told. Uh, My time in the labor movement as a labor leader, as a lead organizer, uh, fighting for janitors um, in Los Angeles for dignity, respect, and, um, you know, fairness when it comes down to decent wages and benefits across uh, the board for janitors in California. But prior to that, I was a police officer. I was was a police officer in the history, in the city of Maywood, Maywood, California. And so I served, and I did a, you know, my, I come from a family of, law enforcement officers, whether CIA, FBI, uh, police department. My nephew um, probably just made his first one-year anniversary as an Alabama state trooper. I have a, uh, a state, um, a Texas Ranger uh, cousin, Bill Gibson. And so law enforcement is, is, is waged into my family trajectory. That's amazing. Uh, so many of your family uh, serve are peace officers and police. So you were a, a police officer in the city of Maywood. How long did you serve there? Five and a half years. I enjoyed being a police officer. Uh, my partner, John Hoagland, was shot and killed in the line of duty. Um, and that gave me you know, a different uh, mindset in terms of uh, being a law enforcement. I enjoy you know, s- protecting the community from bad people. Um, I, I really enjoyed that, and and had it not been for that, I'd probably still be in law enforcement today, and I wouldn't be here with you, Joel, um, doing this podcast. When when you were growing up, were you at all afraid of police? Were your friends afraid of police? I know you became a police officer. You had family who was police officers, but what about your peers? Uh, did they look at the police differently than you because of that background? So one, I wasn't, I was not fearful of the police. Uh, law enforcement because my cousin was United States Marshal and his sons, you know, FBI, CIA, etc. So I wasn't afraid uh, because the, 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 that wall was was brought down. Not to mention I had police officers 
from 77th Division and Southeast Division of Los Angeles Police Department that got out of their cars, that knew my name, that knew my mother, you know, and it's that kind of relationship that made the barriers being torn down. The other piece I want to bring up to is when you look at law enforcement, when I became a police officer, uh, it cost me some friends. I had friends who told me that they can no longer, I can, we can no longer hang out for the simple fact because of what I represented. And they were afraid of that because of their own experiences and their own encounters with law enforcement. So I had to learn to accept my friends no longer wanted to be my friends. But you can't take everybody in your future. You got to leave somebody, some people in your past. And I realized that at an early age. But for now, I think there needs to be a, a reckoning between law enforcement and the black and brown community to build up a relationship so that people won't uh, feel a certain way towards law enforcement. We can do this. Now I push back on the fact that we have to be hard and we have to show that we're the, our, we're the superior force. I, I, you know, I push back on that. I didn't have to do it. And again, people who hear this say, well, you only been there five and a half years. You don't have enough experience to be able to make that statement. I want to treat people the way my mama told me to treat people. And that's the way I want to be treated. That's excellent. And I really like what you said about the wall was already broken down for you. You didn't have that, you know, that image that's just, it's in our minds. Um, it's our society. And the only way to heal it is coming together. Uh, like you said, getting out of the car, community policing, and getting to know the, the police officers in the community. But don't, but, right. But don't get me wrong, Joel. Even though I, I made that statement, um, if I ever get pulled over because I have because of where I was driving, the time I was driving, and because I was an African-American. But the point I want to make f because of that, um, I always tense up when it comes down to law enforcement. Uh, whether, you know, I'm pulled over or whatever, I think it's just a nature, right? And it plays on the psyche because of what we see in our news media. When we watch news, we watch news mostly at night. And we take what we watched a few moments ago, whether it's, a, whether it's five or, or 10 o'clock news, nine o'clock or 11 o'clock news, and we lay down and go to bed with that image in our mind. And that plays on our psyche. So we have to also create a new psyche that tears down these walls to say, you know, I encounter a police officer. I don't have to worry about him being aggressive towards me. We can talk to me or he can treat me or approach me like a man or a woman. Now that's very telling that even um, as an assembly member, even as a former police officer, you still get a little tense. And I'll say the same for me, you know, even nothing to fear, but, you know, getting pulled over right. and, and it's, it, it is a tense situation. Um, so let's let's go ahead and talk about uh, Assembly Bill 1196. So what what is a carotid restraint? A carotid hold is where you apply pressure on the neck that stops the flow of blood to the brain that leads to the individual being rendered unconscious and which applied incorrectly, it caused death. And the reason why 1196 is important because we want to ban this practice from taking place. Um, and it is something that is unnecessary. Larger departments um, in the state have banned this practice. You can still affect an arrest without implementing such practice. Now, is that something that is actually taught? I was never 
in the academy. It never came up in anything that I uh, did um, when I was a police officer. So do you think that um, training is something that could alleviate some of these issues, that could possibly eliminate uh, the use of such dangerous um, tactics? So 1196 uh, doesn't leave for us to pause and train people the right way, right? 1196 eliminates, place a ban on that particular method being used in the state of California. The Los Angeles Police Department has already done so. The city of San Diego took a very bold step and banned it in the city of San Diego. Just to come along two days, 48 hours, the uh, county of, of San Diego banned it as well. And so when you look at all these law enforcement agencies doing this, even before they're being mandated to do it, um, I think it takes great leadership on their part. It's also to indicate you don't have to do this to restrain someone in the midst of affecting an arrest. And so we honor those great leaders for making that happen. And I want to make sure that we're consistent across the board. California can be a leader in this space and California will in fact lead. And we're hopeful that we will do the work um, through this piece of legislation, 1196, that would be the impetus that other states will do it as well across this country. Whether we have federal intervention or not, we hope that states will be progressive enough to do this kind of ban. So given yes. that the terrible um, the murder assassination that we witnessed, uh, that the country witnessed of George Floyd um, and how that has spurred all of this movement. Do you think that now is the time when we have the wind behind our sails, uh, so to say, that now is the time to push this type of legislation? Joel, absolutely. Absolutely. The time is now. We want to make sure that no one else has to go through uh, what uh, Brother George went through. I can't breathe. Take your, your knee off my neck. We have to do this. And if we want to want address the systemic racism that exists in our, in our, in our state, in our country, uh, we're gonna need everybody coming together and supporting this. And this is only one step. This is only one of many steps that needs to take place. So why, why do you think that we're even here at a place where you need to introduce legislation telling someone not, it's telling a, a police officer, someone we trust to um, to not do something that we see is just obviously so wrong and so harmful and has killed so many people. Right. Joel, um, I wish we weren't here. I wish that Mike Gibson could be putting forth legislation to create more parks, more green space, um, creating more jobs. But we're in this space because there was an incident that took place um, uh, in our history that rocked not only uh, uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, not only did it rock that state, it's rocking all, uh, all of our states here in the United States. Not only is it rocking the United States of America, but also other countries. So this is an international cry for change. And we have to be change agents because now we are, we've been thrust in a space to speak truth to power, and to demand change and action. And so we find ourselves in this space doing just what we believe that people need and they need to feel that there is hope. They need to feel 
that their government, the people who they elected, are hearing their voices. And I believe that I am unapologetically listening to the voices of the people um, here in California and across this nation that th the time is now. We have to do this. We have to say, get your knee off my neck. But we not only have to get our knees off our neck when it comes down to uh, 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 this uh, practice, but we need to get our the, the knees off of the necks of injustice, the knees off of the neck of police brutality, the knees off of, our, off of the neck of not funding resources for police officers to have adequate training, bias training, to, to let them know that, you know, when you see someone who's of African-American descent or Latino descent, um, you shouldn't have to feel uh, fearful. Um, and so we have to change that. We also have to create more opportunities for black and brown to become police officers in this state of California. Assemblymember Gibson, thank you so much for joining us on the Look West podcast. Listen, Joel, thank you very much. I really appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, working with Look West the podcast uh, and others as we talk and as we have a real dialogue about this issue. It's important. Thank you. It really was a pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate it. Likewise, brother. Eva Tack is a former police lieutenant with the Richmond Police Department and now a therapist and mental health expert. I talked with her earlier this week. Thanks again for joining us, Eva. We want to talk with you about your time in a police uniform and what role mental health plays in the world of law enforcement. But before we get to that, what was your initial response to seeing the video of George Floyd being killed by a police officer? Just seeing a police officer choke a man to death while looking relaxed and having his hands in his pocket. What I saw, and this was like in the first day or the next day, I think it was that Tuesday, on the news they were showing, and I actually took a photo of my television because I felt it was so egregious. I mean, I have been involved in taking people down and, you know, getting into scuffles and having a um, restraint on the ground numerous times, my, you know, my own instances assisting others. I have never seen someone so chill with their hands in their pocket and their sunglasses on top of their head on the neck. He was not wrestling. He had his hands in his pocket and he was so relaxed. And the other officers allowing it. I mean, there's been times as an officer, as a sergeant, as a lieutenant, it's like, you need to step back. This needs to stop intervening in some way, saying something because yeah, um, adrenaline is flowing. You're hyped up. We do things under that type of stress. But having all the officers around, nobody doing that, nobody taking that role. And beyond that, there was no, even when there was no pulse, there was no effort to revive. And that's beyond surprising. You're right. Thank you. Now, let's back up. Can you tell us about your path to becoming a police officer and how you ended up becoming a mental health expert? Well, I was hired um, as an officer with Richmond Police Department in 1984. At that time, the group I was hired with was the first group that was hired after a three-year hiring freeze. 
after a federal civil rights lawsuit against the Richmond Police Department, which at the time was the highest um, award of $3 million in the nation. Actually, there was a 60-minute special uh, while I was at the academy on my department. Part of the federal court order was to um, hire a more diverse group. So in my group, we had one Asian male, one white male, two black males, one white female, one or two black females. And later, um, when we joined the, um, after the academy with the FTO program and Hispanic female, it was diverse because the um, federal judge ordered it to be. And, <laughs> and once we got back to the department, it was a different world. So as the, the three females of color, me, the other black female and the Hispanic female, we became very close because we bonded for survival. Um, we found they did everything in the department possible to drive us out. Um, one of them, she was um, eventually, she retired on a stress retirement after, I mean, the pressure was beyond ridiculous. The other black female basically while still, or within the two years, she had kept a very careful log of the different instances. And she had a um, appointment with our chief of police and said, this is what I've been logging. If this continues, you will have another lawsuit on your hand. And the, and fortunately, I was articulate and able to write. I grew up being told that I had to be not twice as good, but three times as good. So I had ex extremely high statistics. I was very active. After working three years, I was fortunate enough to be named officer of the year. And I was promoted to sergeant after five years. I often heard the comment, you are promoted because you are black and female. Um, just totally dismissing, minimizing the study I did, the work I did, you know, sending my daughter to my grandparents, spending weekends studying, doing workshops, organizing study groups, mock orals. I could go on and on. It was hard work that earned me the promotion. I served with the Richmond Police Department for 21 years, uh, moving through the ranks to the rank of lieutenant and retiring as lieutenant of the Internal Affairs um, Division. I am proud of my work in Richmond. I learned a lot, I matured a lot, and I also saw a lot, especially working in internal affairs. Also, my background before I joined the police department, I was a psychology major at UC Berkeley. So I always had an interest in human behavior which was helpful in my work with the community, as well as seeing some of the issues that um, came up in my work in law enforcement. And one of those was the need for mental health services, also for police personnel, officers, dispatch, first responders, which after my retirement, I returned to school, completed my master's degree, and decided to specialize in working with emergency responders. Wow, what a background. And that gives um, a really unique view. I, I, I didn't know that you were also on an internal affairs. That's um, 
because that gives you a unique view of the police department itself, I would imagine. Yes, I was um, an investigator as a sergeant, and then I returned as the commander of the unit. The police officers, they face trauma on a very consistent basis, right? It's a, it's a traumatic job. Uh, sometimes you have to do things that you don't want to do. Um, so you work in like an ongoing therapy for these officers. What kind of, um, how, did, how do the officers feel after um, com- doing their work? Well, there's a variety of factors that affect the mental health of police officers. Um, we hear about the obvious ones, the, the natural, the natural disasters, the huge, you know, community events. We, about the officer involved shootings or, um, vehicle accidents and fatalities. Um, those we commonly hear about and there's an expectation But what we don't hear about is some of the ongoing stressors, the shift work, the the long hours. It's not uncommon to have a 26, 36 hour day with or going to work with no sleep. Um, There's the attitude of citizens in the community. And so there's also peer pressure or the traditional um, code of silence. There are so many factors involved. This isn't excusing some of the acts or the systemic, the endemic um, racial inequities. Um, This is just providing a view of a different layer. One of the things that you mentioned um, earlier was a code of silence. We always hear about this in in policing. What what is what what is your take on that? And is there anything that could be done that would make it easier for officers to uh, you know call out a wrongdoing that they've that they've witnessed? Well, as you said, it's um, evident in many different areas, um, whether it's you know, we look at the Catholic Church, we look at in medical profession. So, but speaking of in law enforcement, well, most groups you want to, protecting your own is a way of also protecting yourself. And then it's further accelerated by the fear of being ostracized if you speak up or being looked upon, or people not responding to cover you, or covering you when you call for help on the, on the radio. Um, it really comes to, from the leadership, um, it really, you know, chiefs, sheriffs, their voice, their authority really sets the tone. Um, as internal affairs commander, I, I remember instances of debate and having the chief be the ultimate voice in my finding and having findings overturned that I had substantiated and they're overturned to unsubstantiated. The department head holds a lot of power of what is acceptable and not acceptable in the department. Um, But I've been so proud of so many police chiefs that have spoken up recently and, and not in a robotic way, 
but truly genuine and meaning what they say and being part of the group, being also um, disgusted by some of the occurrences. And even with my own former department, um, we had Chief Chris Magnus, who um, came in as police chief in 2006. And in, I believe it was 2014-15, he actually stood along with his command staff with protesters, and he was photographed holding a sign that says, Black and Brown Lives Matter. And he was criticized nationwide for that. And But the work that he did in the city of Richmond, it really changed a lot of the dynamics which still continue to exist. And it was, one, making the community or the police department more reflective of the community in demographics. It was also the officers as well as command staff, every level, being more involved in validating and listening to the community. And it wasn't a us against them, which I think also perpetuates that sense of the, the code of silence, that it's us against them, rather than, so it's looking at the question, as law enforcement, are we, is our focus on service and protection or control? And those are two very different things. What do you think uh, possibly has changed from when the police chief Magnus did that and caught all the flack for it to now where police chiefs feel a little more comfortable being with the community? Obviously not everywhere, but the examples that you've seen. What do you think has uh, changed at all? I think as more leaders become more courageous and vulnerable to speak out, to demand and create change within their systems, that it slowly becomes more acceptable. But if I was to put it on measuring stick, I think we are, we've maybe inched up a quarter of the way. Um, some departments further, yes. But it, you know, it cannot be just, law enforcement cannot be held totally responsible for it. I mean, officers are a reflection of society. The, the management, the command staff, the leaders, the department heads are all a reception, a reflection of our greater society. Some are more progressive than others. Some are more astute or woke than others. But as with our nation, predominantly, they're not. Um, has attitude towards mental health changed at all since you were a cop? Um, in 1984, when I joined the department, that to speak about going to see a therapist, never. You could be um, put on a desk job or, or possibly you lose your job for seeking mental health services. Um, now things are changing slowly where there's more peer support teams, there's more training even as early as the the academy with being able to take care and promote mental health as opposed to mental illness, 
where it's becoming less stigmatized. I say less because it hasn't been destigmatized. But, you know, we, we are all humans and we all um, incur pressures. And some of the things that you're exposed to in law enforcement, and I'm speaking directly of law enforcement, um, not all first responders, but law enforcement, is that you see things that the majority of people never see in their lifetime. Or if they do, it may be one incident. And in some ways, I used to um, compare it to areas that are in constant war, as in Northern Ireland or areas of Israel and other now Syria, where, you know, in some cities, I used to um, feel that there is as much gunfire being fired as in those other areas that we identified as war zones. Before we talk about some other aspects of this, like what the requirements are to apply to be an officer, what happens when a police officer does not get the mental health assistance for what is basically PTSD? Um, suffering from some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress can definitely influence how you do your job. It is being addressed more because if it's not addressed, it shows it will show up. It will show up in one way or another. And whether the symptoms are um, short fuse, um, lack of patience, um, anger issues, withdrawal, isolation, um, addictive behavior, um, lack of sleep, and the, the issues that cause, um, interpersonal relationships. I mean, there's a variety of symptoms of whether it's acute trauma or post-traumatic stress that can be involved. Well, well, I, we talked about it, you know, from a, a larger perspective, but what, on the base level, what are the, even the prerequisites for becoming an officer? Like day one, what, do we, what, what would I have to have to be given all of this power, um, like you said, to um, enforce and sometimes enforce control on the community? Well, different departments have different criteria. You know, for across the board, um, a basic high school diploma or equivalency is often the basic. However, some departments have increased their hiring standards to require um, at least an associate's degree. What do you think about that? You know, education, I don't think that there's a a simple yes or no. I think, yes, definitely a high school diploma or equivalency. But as far as higher education, I mean, I know many people with PhDs where I really question their critical thinking. So (laughs) that's not, and then there's many people, you know, you see very many successful people who haven't finished college. So it's the ability to have a sense of curiosity and, and the desire for ongoing learning. Um, physical agility is important. You do have to um, go through a physical agility test. So there's basic um, requirements. Um, when, 
I'm sorry, would you tell me a little bit about how that hiring process works and what basically what what is done during the hiring process to kind of ensure that we have good people uh, working there? You do your best. <laughs> and with any testing procedure, um, it is not an absolute. Um, it's not absolute. Is there an example of maybe a, a police department or something that you've even heard about, maybe in a, a different part of the world, international. Um, do you think like the inadequate training or hiring processes is a large contributor to police brutality? So it's not just based upon training. Police work is a reflection of our society. And there are very real implicit and explicit biases that we are enculturated with from birth. And most of it works on an unconscious level. Explicit bias influences every interaction, every interpersonal interaction, especially if you're not familiar with the person. And until we really face the systemic, endemic racial prejudice with blacks being the low man on the totem pole as a country, you can't just point to one segment and say that's the problem. And that when blacks are seen as less than it's really easy to, if you think that someone is less than in human, you can't relate to them as your brother, mother, cousin, buddy. It's easy to sit on their neck for nine minutes. Yeah, it is a systemic thing. It pervades all um, of our society. But it seems to be that police brutality is such a flashpoint when we see that video that makes everyone react. When it is in your face, then people are more likely to take action. But still, in this past two weeks, I've just, there's so many people that still say, this is a political issue. I'm uncomfortable with this. They're uncomfortable because they can walk away from it. We are uncomfortable with change. Anxiety is bred from the unknown. And whether... It's good or bad. If it's familiar, that's what we're attracted to. We are attracted to the familiar, whether it's in who we socialize with, who we spend time with. It is the familiar. We are not comfortable with change. And so we're talking about changing an entire system of our country. And it's very uncomfortable until we are ready to be uncomfortable, nothing will change. Thank you very much, Eva Tack, for joining us on the Look West podcast. Thank you for um, taking the time and giving it the attention. It is so important. That's the only way change will happen. We're just getting started with this topic on Look West. Coming up on the next episode, Assemblymember Dr. Shirley Ann Weber will join us to talk about her decades of work to right the wrongs of discrimination against black people in America. An internationally known diversity and inclusion consultant, Rosalind Taylor O'Neill, will talk with us about how we can move forward for better workplaces and better communities. And we'll hear from a community leader about what it's like to be on the streets 
and what they hope the future holds for black Californians. I'm Joel Wolfork with Look West. Stay safe. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. When you think of California and politics, remember to look west.